Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, suicidal ideation, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Lynn Triforos lay in bed wide awake. She hated sleeping alone. She thought about calling Herman, but knew better than to break the rules. If he wanted her there, he'd ask. She wasn't going to become a clingy girlfriend. She wouldn't make the same mistakes as Jean Harris. Lynn stared at the empty space next to her and imagined Herman lying there. If she thought hard enough, maybe he would wind up in her dreams. It was a poor substitute, but it would have to do for the night. After hours of tossing and turning, Lynn finally relaxed. Just as she drifted off around midnight, her phone rang, startling her awake. She fumbled for the receiver in the dark. Herman's sister, Billy, was on the other end of the line. After a long silence, Billy stammered, there's been a terrible accident. Hi. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed the unconventional relationship between educator Jean Harris and Dr. Herman Tarnauer. Jean waited for over a decade for Herman to commit to her, but he never could. Years of emotional abuse combined with a methamphetamine prescription from Herman led her to become severely depressed. In the spring of 1980, at age 56, Jean decided to take her own life, but not before seeing 69-year-old Herman one last time. This week, we'll detail Jean and Herman's tragic final night together. Then we'll discuss the heartbreaking trial that followed and the shocking truths it revealed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On the cold, rainy night of March 10th, 1980, Jean Harris sped through New York City for what she knew would be the last time. In a few hours, she'd be dead, and Herman Tarnauer would never have to see her again. Her hands trembled as she gripped the wheel tight. It was her fifth day without the drug desoxin, and she was still suffering from the symptoms of methamphetamine withdrawal. She had barely slept the previous night. The hypnotic rhythm of the streetlights dared her to close her eyes. It took all of her focus just to stay on the road. She reminded herself that it would all be over soon. One more stop and then she'd finally be free. Jean pulled into Herman's estate around 10.30 p.m. 
She wound down the long driveway slowly. Disappointed, he hadn't left a single light on for her. Herman knew she was coming, but when she entered the bedroom, she found him sound asleep. Still, she couldn't help but smile as she took a seat at the foot of the bed. He looked so peaceful that she almost didn't want to bother him. She lovingly nudged him awake, expecting him to give a groggy chuckle when he realized he'd dozed off. But Herman was not amused. He growled at Jean to be quiet and told her it was too late to talk. Her smile faded. She reminded him she'd driven four hours just to see him. He rolled away and told her to get some sleep. Jean didn't know what to do. She couldn't leave without saying a proper goodbye. She gently shook his leg to wake him up again. He snarled at her once more, ordering her to shut up and go to bed. Jean was speechless. This was not the loving goodbye she had imagined. Flustered, she retreated to the bathroom and flipped on the light. She froze when she spotted the clothing rack in the far corner of the room. Dangled on the hook, staring back at her, was a satin negligee that she knew belonged to Herman's assistant, Lynn Triforos. Jean's face grew white hot. Herman should have been expecting her, yet he couldn't even be bothered to put away Lynn's things. Slippers, hair curlers, jewelry. The room was littered with her junk. She ripped the lingerie off the hanger, stormed to the bedroom, and threw it to the floor. Heart aching, she raced back to the bathroom, grabbed Lynn's curlers, and hurled them through the door too. A crash rang out as they shattered the dressing room window across from the bed. Herman jumped out of bed fuming. Teary-eyed, Jean turned to confront him, ready to unleash years of anguish. But before she could get a word out, he struck her across the face. She staggered backwards, stunned. He'd never hit her before. She could barely process what had happened. In a blind rage, Jean grabbed Lynn's jewelry box and threw it at a vanity mirror. Another crash echoed as the glass scattered around her feet. She ran back to the bedroom. Herman hit her again and she collapsed to the floor, defeated. Everything had gone wrong. Her perfect goodbye was ruined. She felt completely hollow. Unable to wait any longer, she took the revolver out of her purse and put it to her head. Herman leapt towards her and smacked the gun aside just as it went off with a deafening bang. The commotion knocked Jean over and sent the gun flying. Herman stood over her, ready to scream, when he felt a fierce, searing pain explode through his palm. He looked down and saw blood pouring from a hole in his hand. His medical training kicked in and he rushed to the bathroom to check the damage. Alone again, Jean crawled on her hands and knees, scrambling to find the revolver. There, underneath Herman's bed, was the smoking gun. Just as she grabbed it, she felt Herman clench her wrist, squeezing so hard that she had to drop the weapon. He snatched it off the ground, and when he wouldn't give it back, she started weeping. 
she told him to just shoot her himself. Overwhelmed by emotion, Jean couldn't think straight. She wailed at Herman, barely even aware of the words coming out of her mouth. All she wanted was to die. Through tears, she saw his grip on the gun relax for a moment, and she lunged for it. This was Jean's last clear memory of their struggle. When Jean later recounted the traumatic night to doctors, she claimed the details for the next few moments were blurry. Everything up to that time was clear to her, but as they wrestled for the gun, she couldn't remember exactly what happened. The symptoms Jean experienced fit with a phenomenon known as dissociative amnesia, and she herself described what she experienced as amnesia. She was not officially diagnosed with the condition, however, so it's impossible to say whether this was the cause of her memory loss. Before I continue, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2019 article for Healthline, Dr. Jill Salati Shulman notes that dissociative amnesia can be caused by severe stress. This abrupt temporary condition is often associated with trauma, causing the individual to mentally block out a stressful event such as abuse or military combat. The memory loss attributed to dissociative amnesia can be as short as a few minutes. During that time, an individual might have a general idea of what happened, but be unable to recall specifics and details. Their memory function could have switched off as a defense mechanism to cope with the trauma they had to endure. The next thing Jean remembered was wrestling Herman for control of the revolver on his living room floor. They tugged it back and forth, blood still seeping from the wound on Herman's palm. During the fight, Jean managed to wrap her fingers around the trigger. Herman lunged forward and lay on top of her, trying to pin her down. Feeling what she thought was the barrel of the gun poking into her stomach, Jean closed her eyes and fired. She heard a muffled bang, but didn't feel anything. Confused, she opened her eyes as Herman rolled off of her. Jean didn't bother to check on him. She jumped up, aimed at her head, and fired. There was nothing but a faint click. Frantic, Jean lowered the weapon and checked the barrel. As she turned it over in her hand, it accidentally fired again, striking the wall. Jean whipped it back to her temple and pulled the trigger over and over. It was empty. Jean remembered she had more bullets in her jacket and snatched it from the floor. She ran to the bathroom and shook out her pockets. Bullets clattered onto the tile. Inexperienced with guns, Jean tried to empty the revolver but couldn't pry the casings loose. Desperate, she struck it against the bathtub, trying to knock them loose. On the third hit, the cylinder busted. She tried to jam it back into place, but it was too late. The gun was broken. She returned to the bedroom, still trying to wedge the cylinder back in its place. As she rounded the corner, she saw Herman pulling himself weakly onto the bed. Blood stained the sheets. In a sudden flash of horror, Jean realized what she had done. 
she rushed to Herman's side, laid him down on his back and grabbed the phone to call for help. Inexplicably, there was no dial tone. Jean fumbled with the receiver, telling Herman she thought the line was dead. He said she was probably right, then closed his eyes. Though Jean didn't know it at the time, these would be the last words Herman Tarnauer ever spoke to her. Jean struggled to breathe as she gazed down at her lover. There was too much blood. Panic overwhelmed her. He wasn't supposed to die that night. As her brain struggled to comprehend reality, she went into survival mode. Remembering there was a payphone at the nearby community center, she ran to her car and sped off into the night. Eyes puffy and red, Jean ignored every stop sign and traffic light on the way. Just as she was about to turn into the parking lot, she saw the flashing lights of a police car in her rearview mirror. Without thinking, she whipped a U-turn back towards the house and hit the gas. Sirens wailed behind her as she barreled back to Herman's home. She raced up the driveway with law enforcement still in hot pursuit. She screeched to a stop outside the garage, jumped out of the car and sprinted to the police officer. Before he could react, Jean screamed at the top of her lungs over the whir of the sirens. Herman Tarnauer was shot. The officer followed Jean into the home and tried to stabilize Herman, but he couldn't. He radioed for an ambulance, and several minutes later, the quiet Westchester estate was overrun with police. Jean spent the next half hour trying to explain the situation. She admitted her suicidal intentions and that she was the one who'd shot Herman. Though she claimed it was a horrible accident, the authorities couldn't hide their skepticism. Terrified for Herman's life, Jean watched in horror as paramedics carried him out of the house. When they passed, she saw his arm hanging lifelessly over the side of the stretcher. In that moment, she shut down and fainted. Coming up, Jean's fate is sealed. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On March 10, 1980, 56-year-old Jean Harris killed her lover, 69-year-old Herman Tarnauer. 
She intended to die by suicide, but after Herman intervened, he was accidentally shot during the struggle. Shortly after, Jean was arrested for his murder. She awoke on March 11th with her head against the cold steel of a jail cell. She had wept most of the night, agonized by memories of Herman's bloody body. As soon as she opened her eyes, the tears came flooding back. Exhausted and inconsolable, she barely noticed her lawyer, Joel Martin Arno, standing in the hallway. Joel patiently listened as Jean sobbed through the events of the previous night. She told him that she didn't care about what happened next and that nothing mattered with Herman gone. She was overcome by guilt. She didn't want a defense lawyer. She only wanted to die. It was the only fitting punishment she could think of. Despite the turmoil in their relationship, Jean was hopelessly devoted to Herman. He was the only thing in her life that she cherished, and for the past decade, he'd been the only one she could count on. The moment he died, her years of frustration seemed to disappear. Her shame outweighed everything he had ever put her through. Herman was no longer the womanizing, often cruel man she had to fight to be with. In her guilt, she put him on a pedestal, transforming him into a saint. From the first moment Jean met with her lawyer, she made it clear that any negativity toward Herman during the trial would be unacceptable. To Joe Arno, Jean seemed completely oblivious to the gravity of her situation. She even asked to attend Herman's funeral as she was being charged for his murder. Joel couldn't believe her audacity. It took a protracted argument from him to convince her otherwise. Two days later, on March 13th, the funeral was attended by over 400 people while Jean sat in a frigid office preparing for her court hearing. As she settled behind the defense table the following afternoon, Jean tried to ignore the swarm of photographers seated behind her. By all accounts, things did not look good. She owned the murder weapon, had confessed to the crime, and according to the prosecution, had a simple motive, jealous rage. As far as they were concerned, it was an open and shut case of deliberate murder. Nevertheless, her lawyer tried to show the judge that Jean loved Herman unconditionally. She never would have harmed him on purpose. His death was a terrible tragedy, but he claimed no punishment could be more severe than the remorse she already felt. Three hours of testimony set the tone for what would become a long, tedious process. Jean sat quietly as the parade of lawyers and prosecutors argued back and forth. Every mention of Herman's name brought a gruesome flashback. Broken glass, the dull clicking of her revolver, Herman's lifeless arm dangling off the stretcher. It was all because of her. The memories cut her like a razor blade. Consumed with grief, her attention drifted in and out. Thoughts of suicide still tormented her. She was just aware enough to hear the words grand jury and second degree murder. When her attorney explained the case was going to trial, her eyes glazed over again. 
They left the courthouse to a barrage of camera flashes and the prying questions of reporters. In the following days, Jean refused to cooperate with her lawyers while they tried to prepare her case. Herman was dead because of her. It didn't matter that it was an accident. The idea of defending herself seemed ludicrous. She didn't want help. She only wanted it all to be over. The trauma associated with accidental homicide is largely unresearched, but undoubtedly leads to a lifetime of guilt. Social psychologist Marianne Gray has written about what she calls the emotional maelstrom that results when someone causes unintentional injury or death. Among many possible reactions, Gray mentions irritation, fear, and detachment from the world as common symptoms. The responsible individual can convince themselves that they can never know happiness again and permanently label themselves a bad person. Jean was in agony. Concerned for her safety, her lawyers urged her to seek professional help, but Jean wouldn't hear it. The only doctor she had ever trusted was Herman. Paranoid that she would be treated as insane, she resisted the idea of psychological treatment. Her family, friends, and legal team all begged her to reconsider. After a long discussion, Jean was reluctantly admitted to the psychiatric ward of the United Hospital in Port Chester, New York. Within a few days, psychiatrist Dr. Abraham Halpern diagnosed her with acute suicidal depression and Jean was placed under 24-hour watch. With the help of her doctors, Jean slowly started to understand that she had been depressed for a very long time. They also explained that she had become addicted to the drug Desoxin. Despite experiencing severe withdrawal symptoms already, Jean couldn't accept that the pills Herman had given her were destroying her body and mind. She adamantly refused to take any other medications. On top of everything else, she couldn't believe that Herman had failed her as a doctor too. Her psychiatrist, Dr. Halpern, would later say that this was a reflection of Jean's guilt. Through rose-colored glasses, she refused to believe Herman was capable of any wrongdoing, especially the idea that he would prescribe her something dangerous. Jean was convinced that only Desoxin, Herman's drug, could help her. Since her stay at the hospital was only temporary, she couldn't switch to a brand new medication safely, especially if she wasn't willing. The side effects could potentially have lasted for months, and Dr. Halper knew they were pressed for time. As a compromise, he gave her a smaller dosage of desoxin to be used only as a last resort whenever she was truly unable to cope. Though it wasn't much, Jean was relieved to be back on her old medication. Feeling slightly better after almost two weeks of withdrawal, her views on therapy started to gradually warm up. One psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Bloomingdale, even got her to open up about her past. They talked about her childhood, overbearing father, and the early feelings of inadequacy that had lingered throughout her life. Unfortunately, there was a limit to how much they could impact Jean's emotional trauma. 10 days after she arrived, Jean was removed from suicide watch. 
As soon as she was deemed fit to leave, her lawyers came to get her. Upon leaving the hospital, Jean's life became a never-ending headline. News of Herman's death had spread worldwide. It even made the front page of the New York Times. Jean felt powerless as she read lie after lie about her and Herman's relationship. From the start, public opinion was against her. Herman had published a widely popular dieting book and was known as a respected doctor. As a result, Jean was viewed as nothing more than a jealous lover. Herman's murder was depicted as cold-blooded and vengeful. No one believed it was an accident. Each accusation and assumption felt like another knife in Jean's gut. With every new headline, she had to relive the worst night of her life all over again. The endless attacks left her hopelessly pessimistic. She felt like the public had made up their minds before the trial even began. The only one who fought back was her lawyer, Joel Arno. He expected a challenge, but was certain Jean would eventually go free. Joel knew that murder convictions required proof of intent. He was confident the prosecution would never be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jean intended to kill Herman. The evidence simply didn't exist. Therefore, he refused to settle. He wouldn't seek a lesser charge or compromise in any way. The jury would have to acquit Jean of all charges or send her to jail. He was absolutely positive they would never find her guilty. Jean wasn't so sure. She was still unable to forgive herself and felt like she deserved to be punished. In her mind, the media had already condemned her and they were destined to lose no matter what. Guilty or innocent, Jean didn't care what happened. Herman was gone. Life had lost all meaning. She and Joel argued constantly over everything from his strategy to the other lawyers on the team. It was a headache, but Joel refused to give in. He could see the pain and suffering in Jean's eyes and knew she needed help. He was going to give it to her, whether she wanted it or not. Finally, after weeks of hostility, he managed to get through to Jean. He reminded her that the trial was the only way to get the real story to the public. If she didn't tell her side of the story, people would have no choice but to believe whatever lies the news wanted them to. It was this appeal to truth that finally changed her mind. Jean rested her elbows on the hardwood table. Her head was throbbing. She and Joel had been arguing for hours, but for the first time in weeks, he'd raised a valid point. No matter how painful this trial was, it was the only opportunity she had to tell the world what really happened. Jean Harris valued truth and integrity more than anything. She was a woman of principles and believed that honesty was fundamental to society. Herman's openness about his affairs was the only reason she'd tolerated them. To her, lies were comparable to poison, and if enough people listened to them, the damage was irreversible. Jean rubbed her temples and took a deep breath. She didn't care what other people chose to believe about her. 
but she did care about how they saw Herman. She needed to tell the truth for his sake. She owed him that. Though she remained doubtful, Jean agreed to help with her lawyers on one condition. She knew her attorneys wanted to present Herman as an unkind, selfish man, but she couldn't tolerate that. Preserving his dignity became her main goal. Any negativity about Herman's character was forbidden. Joel Arno knew he faced a monumental challenge even with Jean's cooperation. Herman's mistreatment of her was a crucial element to building sympathy. Without that, it would be nearly impossible to put her emotional abuse into context, but she was adamant. Reluctantly, Joel agreed to let Jean run the show. Decisions, strategies, and evidence all had to go through her first. It was a compromise he would come to regret. Coming up, Jean Harris goes on trial. Now, back to the story. In March of 1981, 56-year-old Jean Harris was charged with the murder of her lover, 69-year-old Herman Tarnauer. Jean claimed it was an accident, but the prosecution and the public thought otherwise. They believed Jean was jealous of Herman's relationship with Lynn Triforos, his much younger assistant, and had killed him in cold blood. As the date of the trial approached, Jean started to unravel. Her shame weighed on her like a lead vest. On her worst days, she had to take half of a five milligram desoxin tablet just to get out of bed. It helped, but not enough. The dosage was only a fraction of what she was used to. Ultimately, Jean wasn't nervous about the outcome of the trial. In fact, she expected to be found guilty. She didn't really have faith the jury would believe her story, no matter how truthful it was. Even if they did, her reputation was already destroyed beyond repair. It was the spectacle of it all that scared her, the judgmental faces, the vindictive reporters. Her greatest humiliation was going to be showcased in front of the entire world. She just wanted it to end. Her hands trembled as she ascended the steps of the Westchester County Courthouse. Seeing her discomfort, her attorney, Joel Arno, did his best to lift her spirits. He promised her everything would be okay. She was a dignified, respectable woman. The people were going to believe her. What Joel didn't realize was that Jean didn't plan on being respectful. Because she was a hardworking professional, experienced in social decorum, Joel assumed Jean would know how to conduct herself in court. But soon, he realized just how poorly he had prepared her. Jean's behavior throughout the trial ranged from obnoxious to outright disrespectful. Whenever she disagreed with a statement, no matter who was talking, she let them know it. Contrary testimony was met with laughs, scoffs, or any number of other rude noises. She couldn't help herself. Joel felt the sweat gather on his brow with every errant remark. He, or another member of the defense, reminded Jean to remain stoic each time she had an outburst. Whether she realized it or not, 
her behavior was doing them no favors with the jury. But Jean persisted. She didn't care how anyone else felt, not even her own defense team. These were her honest reactions. If her lawyers had a problem with her behavior, then so be it. It was her fate hanging in the balance, not theirs. Before long, the entire courtroom knew how easy it was to get under Jean Harris's skin. The chief prosecutor, assistant district attorney, George Bolin, repeatedly used this to his advantage. Every time Jean mocked a statement or belittled a witness, it helped his case. So, he started going out of his way to provoke her. He twisted words and asked deliberately confusing questions just to see how she'd react. More often than not, it worked. Jean was her own worst enemy. It's unclear to what degree Jean's continued drug use impacted her mental state during the trial, but it certainly didn't help. Most likely, a volatile combination of desoxin, grief, and emotional stress compelled her to make a scene. Jean became so unstable that she would snicker at a witness one minute, then burst into tears the next. On some occasions, she seemed to zone out completely and stare at a fixed point on the wall ahead of her. The jury didn't know what to make of it. Jean was clearly in pain, but her mood shifted so suddenly that they couldn't help but find it unsettling. After a while, they couldn't tell if her grief was genuine or not. The longer the trial went on, the less patience they had. The tedium was made even worse because both sides seemed intent on dragging the trial out for as long as possible. It was exhausting. Weeks of testimony started to blur together. Pathologists, forensic experts, detectives, witnesses. One by one, it seemed like the entire city took the stand. Jean's defense was meticulous, wanting to provide as much evidence as possible. It was thorough, but time-consuming. The prosecution, on the other hand, just wanted to bore the jury. It was a key part of George Bolin's strategy. He knew the physical evidence was against him. Given that she composed her will beforehand, Jean's supposed intent to kill Herman was speculation at best. But if he could confuse the jury long enough, he hoped they would vote with their instinct rather than their logic. And after weeks of enduring Jean's erratic behavior, their instincts were not on her side. At long last, the end of the trial neared and Jean finally took the stand. It was the moment she'd been waiting for. She took a second to compose herself and then told her story. Just as she feared, the jury was clearly skeptical. Some smiled, some even laughed, but no one seemed to sympathize with her testimony. For eight days, Jean bared her soul in the courtroom and barely anyone seemed to care. It was agony. She was examined and cross-examined. Her relationship with Herman was dissected and pulverized. Her privacy, dignity, and modesty were all violated. Never in her life had Jean felt so vulnerable. Worst of all, 
At no point did her lawyers attempt to convince the jury of her unstable mental state. They were worried the prosecution would weaponize her mental illness, and as a result, all they focused on was the physical evidence. They ignored her years of depression and her non-existent self-esteem. Though Jean's psychiatrists were ready to testify on her behalf, none were asked to speak. The jury never got a full understanding of Jean's fractured psyche. No one explained to them how she'd become psychologically dependent on Herman and physically dependent on the drugs he prescribed. According to a report by her psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Bloomingdale, Jean's reliance on Herman was so great that he had almost become a father figure to her. He provided her with the emotional and physical intimacy that her own father never did. Dr. Bloomingdale explained that Jean suffered greatly her entire life. She'd battled loneliness, inferiority, and inadequacy, only finding relief in Herman's affection. Dr. Bloomingdale concluded that Jean's relationship with Herman was essential to her own sense of being. Without him, she barely felt like a person at all. Had the jury understood that, they might have believed that Jean could never have hurt Herman on purpose. But they didn't. By February 1981, things looked grim for the defense. Jean appeared erratic and impulsive. No matter how hard she insisted on the truth, the court didn't seem to believe it. The prosecution knew that it was time for them to pounce. Unfortunately for Jean, she was about to put the final nail in her own coffin. Jean's foot shook as the prosecution prepared the crime scene photos. She dreaded this moment most of all. Her memories were torturous enough she didn't want to see the bloody scene all over again. She'd spent hours recounting the details of that horrible night, and now the prosecution wanted to verify her statements. As the pictures were revealed, Jean's face sank. Nothing was the way she remembered. In her mind, Lynn's satin lingerie had been distinctly blue, but in the photos, it was black. The pattern had changed too, the shape of her slippers was different. So was the color of the hair curlers. Everything was wrong. Jean panicked. Either the crime scene had been tampered with or she was losing her mind. For the first time, she doubted herself. The reasons for the disparities in the photographs was never discovered. Jean's trauma-induced memory loss could have played a role, but it's impossible to know for sure. Regardless, her credibility was ruined. To the jury, she was either a liar or dangerously unbalanced. Both were equally devastating to her case. On February 12, 1981, 12 weeks after the trial began, Jean Harris was found guilty of second-degree murder she was sentenced to 15 years to life. When the judge read out the verdict, Jean stared ahead blankly. There were no tears, no outbursts, just quiet resolve. It was the outcome she had expected since the beginning. Her fears had been confirmed. 
For the rest of her life, she would be known as Herman Tarnower's murderer. Asked for her last words, Jean softly addressed the courtroom. In a calm, defeated voice, she reiterated her love for Herman. She closed by saying, No one in the world feels that loss more than I do. I am not guilty, Your Honor. Jean was sent to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Though it was a harsh adjustment, she eventually came to terms with her new reality. She even put her years of teaching and administrative experience to use, helping to run the parenting center in the prison. She spent years informing and advocating for inmates' rights. In December of 1992, after serving 11 years, her sentence was commuted by Governor Mario Cuomo as she was being prepped for heart surgery. At the age of 70, Jean was released. She returned to Connecticut to live out her final days in a retirement home. Jean Harris and Herman Tarnower's relationship was far from conventional. It was boundary pushing, frustrating, and ultimately tragic. But through it all, Jean's love for Herman never faded. There could be no doubt she would have given anything to change their final night together. Anything to see Herman one more time. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Jean Harris amongst the many sources we used, we found Very Much a Lady by Shana Alexander extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.